Hey guys, welcome to episode 136 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to thank you all for spending your time with us today. And at the top of this show, we wanted to thank all of our listeners. I'm sure John does too. For those amazing reviews on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on and for joining our Patreon page. You guys know I'm always excited for that. (laughs) So both things help us tremendously and we really appreciate it so much. And as always, new Patreon supporters will be listed at the end of the episode. So if that's you, stay tuned till the end. And sorry, one more thing. I forgot to do it on the last one. Um, We're doing our listener stories episodes in October. It's always a favorite of mine. So if you have an awesome story to tell, please send it over to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. It can be paranormal, true crime related, or just something scary. Whatever you want. It could even be UAPs or UFOs, whatever they refer to them now. Is it UABs or UA- UAPs? What did I say? I think you said UAPs. All right. Well, whatever. It doesn't matter. You get the point. You that you can give us those too. Those are yes. always kind of creepy. Whatever's like weird, you know? John's always a fan of the, the UFO stuff. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm like waiting for someone to be like, you know what? Yeah, I saw this. Like, come <laughs> on, somebody. Give me one of those stories. And if you've already sent a story... Hang tight. Um, I still have to read them all. So what I do is I put them all in a folder and I say this every year. And then once like a creepy October night comes, I'll like pour myself a pumpkin beer, put on a pumpkin candle and read your stories in the dark to like sufficiently creep myself out. And it's definitely it definitely always works. <laughs> Do you remember like being a kid and like what was it on ABC it was like the 31 nights of Halloween, right? Yes. Thir- was it was it ABC? Yeah, well, it was like ABC Family, and okay. now it's something else. It, it always changes. Okay, but you remember that? I used to love that because I knew that every single night when I was, like, just home, I would, like, watch them with my grandma and stuff. It was the coolest time. It was the that's coolest cute. time. Yeah. So that's why I know how much you like that. It's, uh... Well, I actually watch a horror movie for every day in October, but John, like, won't watch them all with me, so. No, no, no. Really quickly. I know we're about to go off on a tangent, I, but I have to just, I have to include this. It's just the B-list thing. I I just cannot get into like a B-list horror movie because when I think of horror, right? Um it's kind of like true crime in a way. I I want to be scared and if it's like corny at all or things don't make sense, I just can't get into it. You need the full-blown special effects. Like you need it to look good to be scared. Not yes, not only that, but I feel like truly at night at a movie theater really gets me going. But at home, <laughs> gets you going. I, yeah, like at home though, it's just not the same, and I really believe that. That's why I think cinema still is awesome in a movie theater. It's true, but then a lot of times when you go to watch a horror movie in theaters, sometimes the audience can ruin it. Like I hate when people laugh or like are talking, and I'm like, no, I'm trying to be in a mood right now. I also it get does that. bother. I, me. I understand completely. But really, any true horror fan knows there is no better like high than finding a b-list or even potentially a c-list movie that ends up being this like crazy classic hit nope can't get into it no you're just like oh my god you know what you liked you really liked the houses october built the first one and that is a v-list horror movie it was a gem exactly but they're not but they're not all gems anyway i'm sure people are team john with that well, you got to kiss a few frogs to find a prince. I'm I'm sure. But I'm just saying, well, I'm not kissing any princes. But, you know, or frogs. I, I have my queen right here. But oh. um, I, <laughs> yeah, no, I I can't get on a B-list train. But anyway, 
We can continue okay. past this topic. Yes. Um, okay. So, John, today's episode involves true crime, which I know you now sufficiently love, but it also involves something you hate. Oh, all right. What, what's that? Long Island. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. All right. We're visiting Long Island today. All right. Let me buckle up. Okay. So, are you ready to hear something crazy? Yes. So like I told our Patreon listeners in the episode we released last week for them, I'm back to school, back on my grind, and I love the start of a new school year, the butterflies, the excitement of a fresh start. It's just so great. And to honor that all, I figured that I would take you all to the setting where I will basically call home for the next 10 months of high school. And it's crazy how saying that brings up so many emotions for all of us like if I could say oh my god would you ever go back to high school it's like immediately you're you're hit with like nostalgia and probably like teen angst and hating that girl from second period again you know it like brings up so many emotions oh definitely and it's mainly because that's the time in our lives where we began to form into the people that we are today like you really start to find yourself in high school Because you can have some independent thoughts of your own. In today's episode, a scandal will erupt in a middle-class Long Island town called Selden. And it will completely divide the community. Now, I don't want to give away too much because I want to keep you guessing. But just know that when the teacher that school year completed her seating chart by alphabetizing her students in her homeroom class by last name, She sealed someone's fate. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Kathleen and James Pearson moved to Selden, New York in the 1970s, along with another 10,000 New Yorkers that made the choice to escape the violence of the city, you know, especially in the 1970s, and move out to the peace of Long Island. See, as a silent observer from across the river, I have observed a few things about New Yorkers, okay? Tread carefully. I I know. Tread carefully. (laughs) Um, one is that they never, ever want to leave New York. Well. They hate it. I. And everywhere else is trash. Okay. Well, it I. It took me forever to get you to the land, the promised land that is New Jersey. All right. Calm down now. I think I could speak for most New Yorkers. I think that New Yorkers are a very proud bunch of people. And I think it's just simply put that way. So. They're never going to admit that where they live sucks, even if it does. <laughs> and all I'm going to tell you now is, you know, back in the 70s, yeah, I'm sure moving out to Long Island was fantastic. Oh, it's beautiful. Houses are cheap. But they were the cause, the start of this massive explosion that just made getting there an impossible task and a nightmare. Yeah. We go there to see my mother, my father, and it is horrible. I've mentioned it. Uh, probably a ton of times at this point, but it is horrible. Well, I actually thought it was, so. Selden is actually very close. So where John's mom and dad are, what an exit apart from each other? 
I'm not too sure. I, I one or two exits yeah, apart like on that. the Long Island Expressway. Well, this town of Selden is located in the middle ah. of your parents' two towns, a little bit north, like not because your parents are kind of like on the coast, I guess I would say. Sure. A little bit more. And this is a little bit further like up. Okay. But it is. So we're talking far out on the island. Yeah. But that's uh, that's uh, all I could say about that. We are we are proud New Yorkers, so that's yes. why it's very hard to tell someone, "Hey, come check out this place," or "Hey, you know." And honestly, the Long Island Expressway is probably one of the seven layers of hell. Um, I it's, could probably drive the other direction and get to Delaware faster. Yeah. Than, like, I can get all the way to Delaware. Is is yes. what I, always, I was like, wait, that yeah, no, no. I like to joke. I, I joke <laughs> with people. I say, no, honestly. If it's a bad traffic day, I could probably get to Delaware faster from where I live in New Jersey than me going to out to Long Island, which I think is an incredible, like, it's just mind-blowing. Which is crazy, because essentially it's really only, what, 60 miles away from us, but, yeah. like, where your parents live. Right. Well, it's funny that you bring up, like, the traffic and the population, because when the Pearson family moves to Long Island, it's kind of when this population boom happens. And from 1970 to 1980, the little town of Selden saw a population growth of 624%. That's an insane number. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I mean, in those 10 years, literally 10,000 people moved into the neighborhood. So now it goes from being like this little small town to this really sufficient suburb. And we see in those... 10 years and then especially into the 80s Selden go through a shift from being like a farming community to a lower middle class neighborhood to now an upper middle class neighborhood so it's kind of a really nice zip code to be a part of really all of Long Island is expensive to live in no matter how far you are out but for those of you who don't know Long Island it has some pretty unique demographics If you're just outside of Queens, so like the beginning part of the island, it's super expensive because you're close to the boroughs, JFK airports right there. There's like so many amenities. And then the further and further you go out, it kind of gets a little more affordable. But then boom, now you're in the Hamptons. So it's like there's this little semicircle of affordability in the middle of the island, but everything else is super wealthy. Yeah, and when we're talking affordability here, let's not let's not try to create this false sense of like the houses are still five hundred thousand dollars. At a minimum. Easy. At yeah. a minimum. Yeah. So like affordability, okay, well for, for some a that's cape. yeah. For some that's still not affordable. Oh yeah. It's you like know? stupid crazy money. Yeah. Um but there you know, there still can be some blue collar areas, but it's usually people who either have retired or are just their families are wealthy or they work in the city and they're pretty well or off. they live on the island and they live and work there that's yeah. also a possibility so you know needless to say it's expensive to live there but because there are pockets of affordability it means for new yorkers that if you've made it to the island you've made it to the promised land you know sure Right? Isn't that like the the pattern if someone lives in the five boroughs and then they're like, oh my God, we really want a patch of grass. We want to like raise our family somewhere good. They move out to the islands. They'll never come to New Jersey. Uh, You know know what's interesting about that though? I always feel like – remember The Great Gatsby? Yes. I feel like The Great Gatsby literally made people believe that Long Island was this promised land. Think about it. 
A lot of people read well, The Great it was, Gatsby. It, it was the beginning of getting out of the cities and realizing that, you know, maybe living in these cities where there's a lot of pollution and stuff isn't the place to be. And, of course, they had the great estate. So right. that's why. Well, together, the Pearsons were able to set up a wonderful home in Selden, New York. And they had, you know, just everything you could want from coming from the five boroughs where you really may not necessarily have that space. They now have a swing set outside and above ground pool. And together they had three children. James Jr., who was born in 1964, Cheryl, who was born in 1967, and then um, what some people would call a love child, born nine years later in 1976, a girl that they named Joanne. James was an electrician with the union, so he would occasionally work where they sent him, but his bread and butter was his kind of side jobs that he did throughout his own company because he could kind of take those as cash jobs. And while James worked, Kathleen stayed home with their three children. She kept the house beautiful and saved them thousands on childcare. Because of the dynamic of this family, the power was kind of all held by James. He was the breadwinner and he was kind of the end all be all of the house. Whatever he said went. And he really did have a lot to say. He was really strict. James had these rules that all the children had to adhere by. There was a very strict schedule for the family. Dinner had to be ready at 6 p.m. every night. They were all required to be there and they all had to eat together in silence. Um, After dinner, they had to clean up. Then they had to do their homework, and then they went right to bed. The children were never allowed to watch television. In fact, James had control over every aspect of their life. Okay, so he's pretty much a a jail warden of this house. Yes, he was um, definitely an authoritarian, um, but he was softened by the presence of their selfless mother who would really do anything for them and for him. It Doesn't it always work out that way? When we talk about that dynamic, yes, that is always what happens. Right. The mother's always there to kind of like soften the blow, you know? Mm-hmm. The that's, leather and lace, that's yeah. what it is. That's just, that's just what it was like back then, you know? But unfortunately, tragedy is going to strike for the Pearson family. And just two years after the birth of Joanne, Kathleen was diagnosed with a debilitating kidney disease. Her other children were 10 and 12 at the time. And it all happened quite suddenly. And I could assume that's really how, because we hear about Kathleen's illness from the perspective of her children. So really, when you're that age, you kind of just remember your mother being sick. Um, But I'm sure there might have been signs or she might have been sick, but... At the age when Cheryl is 10, it really kind of starts getting the worst that it is for Kathleen. And she spends a lot of time in and out of the hospital. In fact, um, her longest bout was right after one of Joanne's birthdays, her second birthday. She kind of soldiered through Joanne's birthday party and then had to go to the hospital. And she stayed there for nine months. Wow, that's insane. 
Yeah, and I'm assuming like with the kidney disease, there was um, a lot of dialysis that was taking place. Yeah, I was going to say it must have been dialysis there. Oh, that's so unfortunate. Well, eventually she was able to come home, but her condition only worsened over time. But Kathleen's death was a very slow and painful process. And from the time that she got really sick in 1978, uh, she would live and suffer with her debilitating disease until... 1985 yeah that's really sad especially when you have like three small children you know yeah you don't want to leave them especially when you feel like your husband might not be soft enough to deal with them especially two girls i'm sure all those thoughts you know were running through her head yeah you know because you don't want to leave you don't want to leave your children you know they need you and it's you just can't be there, so it's really sad. It is sad. Pulling out the heartstrings already. I know, sorry. Eleven minutes into the podcast. <laughs> so this left Kathleen unable to do a lot of things that she made look so effortless, like cooking, cleaning, and taking care of Joanne. Because remember, she's still only two years old. And when her mother couldn't do those things, unfortunately, that role fell on the then ten-year-old Cheryl. So from ten on. Cheryl had the responsibilities that her mother had, plus going to school. And that's just heart-wrenching. First of all, it's not her responsibility as a vulnerable 10-year-old girl who is dealing with a dying mother um, to like take on her role of being a mother. And I'm going to say now, in retrospect, in 2022, when we can look back on how we've kind of put children in these situations in the 70s and 80s that might not have been the best for their mental health, that this was a bit of an abusive thing to put on a 10-year-old child. Just because she's the oldest daughter doesn't mean she's ready to, to be a mother. She's only, I mean, like eight years and a few months older than Joanne. So how could she mother her? at 10 yeah no i agree with you there you know that that's when you would think that other family members would step in not to place judgment on her family but you know that's when you know family's supposed to come into the fold when you have um you know a a mother of children not doing so hot in the hospital that's when you know you prepare food you bring it over whatever you do something you do everything that's unfortunate i don't know the family situation but when you have a family, that's the goal, hopefully, is that they pick up to help you pick up the pieces. Yeah, and from what happens later on in this case, it seems like the only other family they kind of have maybe surrounding them would be James Pearson's mother and his side of the family. So there's kind of like an absence of Kathleen's side of the family. Oh, okay. So it's all just really sad. And I, you know, I saw the same thing happen with my own mother as she's told me, you know, once I was grown up enough, I guess, to hear it. But her mother passed away when she was 11 and she had four older brothers, but the burden was on my mother to do the cooking, the cleaning and all the household stuff, even though she was 11 years old. And I think that was just kind of the mindset in the 70s and 80s was well you're the daughter you're the only you're the woman of the household now so now you have to kind of pick up that burden and let me tell you a psychologist would have a field day with that situation because the complexes that it creates into adulthood are alarming 
First, you have this child who's trying to navigate not only growing up, but also discovering who they are put in a situation where they're set up to fail because, of course, a 10-year-old or hell, even like someone who's 16 or 17, which, you know, obviously Cheryl later on becomes, can't juggle cooking, cleaning, taking care of siblings and school. And especially not to the standards that her adult mother could have. So it creates um, issues of like feelings of inadequacy. It wreaks havoc on self-esteem. All of these things are kind of put into this child. And, you know, that's not going to be good moving forward into adulthood. No, it's not. And I, and I think that the role reversal that's taking place I don't know about a reversal, but the the changing of a role, going from being a child, having a mother, and then not having it, let's say, and you are become you are trying you know, filling that role, that wreaks havoc on also like, you know, you're extremely vulnerable. I feel like towards like everything, because you right. don't want to disappoint. Like you said, you don't want to disappoint. You know you're gonna fail, and then it's yeah. like you're not the you're you're not the adult in the situation, so. It's it's like really the responsibility then falls on the father to like do the right thing, right. figure it out, dude. You know, um, that's really upsetting. well. He's definitely not the the warmest of men. Yeah, well, and um, but but there was actually that was the one positive that Cheryl kind of didn't really have any positive attention from her father. He was a really strict figure, and really when. Her mother was well. Her mother gave all the love and James kind of came home and yelled at the kids, right? And now that Cheryl's kind of taking on these roles and helping him around the house, he's giving her positive reinforcement. So for a little girl to get positive reinforcement from her father that she's never received before. That's powerful. Yeah, and she's going to appreciate this and it kind of... um creates this like trauma bond with her father it's very bizarre there's a lot of weird familial relationships happening right now okay in the pearson home so cheryl did feel like she was getting some kind of validation in that way but really she didn't have a normal childhood she never got to go out and play because she was always cooking and cleaning that's sad. It's so, like robbing a kid of their childhood. Yes. Ugh. She never got to have sleepovers because all of her responsibilities at home that she had to tend to. She couldn't leave her little sister. It's pretty sad. It is. So that's why Cheryl is going to kind of throw her life into school as much as she does. She studies really hard to get good grades because she gets positive reinforcement from her teachers that way. And it's truly the only place that she gets to be a kid. And then later on, when she gets to high school, the only place she gets to be a teenager, you know, where she gets to be able to talk to people, flirt with boys um, and interact with her peers in any type of way. When she gets to high school, Cheryl is going to join the cheerleading squad because she wanted to be involved in something and she wanted a reason to kind of get out of the house because she felt so stuck there. And Cheryl is actually very popular at school. The only thing that kind of hinders her social life is that she's not allowed to go out ever. 
So all of her, anything she can do is during school hours or during cheerleading events. Now, is this, now, the fact that she can't leave now at this point while she's in high school, is this because of her own doing, like, because she has all the responsibility, or is it because she's being told she can't? Um, It is a little, that's a good question. It's a little bit of both. So she does have all the responsibilities to attend to. Obviously, Joanne's a little bit older at this point. So she could really take care of herself, meaning like she doesn't have to be watched 24-7. But she does have to do the cooking and the cleaning. And like I said, James is very specific about the things that he demands. Dinner has to be ready at 6 p.m. So now if something isn't done, all hell breaks loose now. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of a mixture of both. And it's easier for her to just do those things so she stays home. Plus, it kind of takes away any wrath that James may have from Joanne. She doesn't want her sister to be the person who gets yelled at or potentially the punching bag. And how old is she around this point? So now at this point, Cheryl is 16 years old. Okay. So she's nine years younger than her. So she's going to be seven. So she wants to protect her as much as possible. She doesn't want Joanne to have the life that she did. That's understandable. I mean, she's had a pretty rough so far. (laughs) It's how you feel about your little sibling. (laughs) Sure. So while Cheryl was at school and able to be like a normal cheerleader, in gym class one day, she gains the attention of one Robert Cuccio. Could there be a more Long Island name? Nope. (laughs) And Robert made Cheryl feel for the first time special. So adorable. It's kind of like Cinderella meets Prince Charming kind of moment. If, like, Cinderella had big 80s hair and Prince Charming had a killer mustache, lived on the island, and his grandma made a mean Sunday sauce. You know? (laughs) That's true. I'm so glad you said sauce and not gravy. I did. I'm I'm not a gravy person. No, we don't call it gravy. It's only if there's meat in it it's supposed to be gravy. But you just still don't call it gravy. You still don't call it that. That, that hurts That that hurts the the, uh, The the Italian Italian gods. (laughs) It's like, it, it. it is sauce. It doesn't matter. It's sauce. <laughs> My grandma would like probably lose her shit if we ever called it gravy. Your grandma made the best meatballs ever. Yeah. Grandma Jean was the best. Oh, they were so good. She was a really good cook. That was, I guess, kind of like the offerings to the Italian gods, like... Her Sunday sauce with the sausage and the like meat and the meatballs. Bun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you know what? You know what is crazy too. Like the whole like, she did the sauce almost like a crock pot kind of, but it wasn't in a crock pot. It was just on a big like, what do you call that? I don't even a pot. Just a big pot, but everything was just <laughs> big pot. yeah. I don't know why. It just that was so hard for me. Um, but everything was on like a low flame and everything just cooked so slowly, but it was so good. And we would get in trouble because we would constantly because we lived in a three-family house so my dad and i would run downstairs and like take bread and just sneak dipping it in her sauce and she would be like you know first time all right you know that's fine you want to taste sauce cool but then it got to the point where we kept doing it and then she's like all right you know because she was so calm all the time she She was was just like all right guys guys you know save it for later save it for later It was so funny. Her and my aunt. Her and my aunt would do it together. They would They would have a really good time doing that. Oh, that sounds... I missed that. Now I'm so hungry for it. I know. It Sorry. On this Sunday. So Rob was exactly what Cheryl needed because he was so loving and caring. 
which I must say is kind of rare for a high school relationship. And trust me, I've seen many crash and burn. But Robert was a gentleman to Cheryl. He told her how beautiful he thought she was. He carried her books for her and he would walk her to class. It was really adorable. And for the first time in her life, which is sad, Cheryl felt appreciated. She felt special. It's really nice. It is nice. You also have to remember, though, too, high school has changed a lot since even we were in school. That a is lot true. Of, you know, back then, high school might have been your last stop. Well, it's really where you met the person you Correct. married because a lot of people didn't go to college. Right. You're right. You're right. So that's why it's like that. You, you treat them a little bit more serious if they might be the mother of your children. That's later. true. <laughs> so James was not really happy with his daughter dating, but there really wasn't anything that he could say about it. She was getting older and it was going to happen sooner or later. And while we don't know exactly what he was thinking, I'm assuming he eventually okayed it because when he met Robert Cuccio, he was very respectful to him. He always obeyed all of the rules that James set out. And trust me, there was a lot of them. And Robert was just a respectful boy. The reason for this was that he understood the household that Cheryl was living in because he grew up in a very strict household as well. His father was a state trooper and he also liked things a particular way. And, you know, he was taught to be respectful to his elders, to people's parents. And abide by the rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the situation was working out. But of course, Cheryl and Robert knew they had to stay in line or it could all be in jeopardy. It was good that Cheryl had Robert because the day before Valentine's Day in 1985, Kathleen passed away. It wasn't sudden. She had been in the hospital for a while and her situation had deteriorated, but it was painful all the same. Cheryl went to school to pick up her books because she would be absent for a few days and she met Robert in the hallway. She told him what happened and he held her at her locker and told her that everything was going to be okay. But things really weren't okay for Cheryl. Things at home got harder. Not only was she dealing with the grief, but she was also helping her seven-year-old sister with it as well. James was in the worst mood he had ever been in. His grief seemed to come out in his temper. Okay, this is going to be a really bad story. And if you do not like violence against animals, please fast forward about a minute. He is at the hospital. Like, he's dealing with stuff with his his wife passing. And their dog, they had two dogs. And he didn't let them out for the whole day. So when he came home, dog peed on the carpet. And I guess he blamed this one dog in particular. And he kicked the dog. What? So hard that it went flying across the room, hit a wall, and it was crying for hours. But he refused to let any of his children comfort the dog. And days later, the dog passed away. So most likely it was caused by the death was caused by internal bleeding. That's crazy. Yeah. What? So that's what I talk. That's James Pearson's temper. Oh, so this guy's just not. A, I could already tell this guy's got issues. Uh, Yeah. I knew I knew he was bad when he was double dipping with the sal- with the salary, working for the union and taking side jobs. Okay. Double dipper. Okay. Yes, I know John is. I I felt like something was weird when you didn't say something about that. Yeah. yeah. Double dipper. I knew you were a bad character. <laughs> All right. All right, bud. 
So James never really had the best relationship with his son, James Jr. And because of the pressures and the fighting, about a few months after the passing of Kathleen, James Jr. is going to leave the house. Right, because he's he's older, right? He is older. Okay, right. He's, he's 18, just about to turn 19 when he okay, leaves the house. Right, he's the firstborn. Yeah. Okay. And he's in and out of the house. So, like, he will come back, but he most of the time stays not with them because he doesn't like how his father does things. Obviously, who would? I mean, yeah, I don't blame him. he seems a bit sadistic. Yeah. So now this puts a lot of pressure on Cheryl, right? Because now she's the one who's really going to receive the brunt of it all. It used to be her brother, but now it's her. So even more pressure is put on her on top of grief, on top of trying to make her sister feel better. Because it's for a seven-year-old to lose their mother. Oh, my. I couldn't even imagine how devastating that is. And she's trying to comfort her. But it's hard to comfort someone in a household at that that's that chaotic. And that was kind of the situation in the Pearson house for a while, for a year, in fact. And in February of 1986, Cheryl was halfway through her senior year of high school, a very exciting time. And those of us who have lost parents know that it never heals, but the days just get better to, they get easier to get through. And at that point, that's where she was until tragedy strikes the family again on February 5th. Who's dying now? It was an icy morning. February always is in the Northeast, especially because you are so over winter at that point. So because it was bad out, James Pearson decided he was going to leave a little bit earlier than he usually does. He had gone into Cheryl's room to wake her up because she had been late for school the day before. He wanted to make sure she was up. He looked in at his daughter, Joanne, who was still sleeping. He knew that Cheryl would wake her up later and make sure she made it to school as well. He put on his red and black hunting jacket, which just barely stretched over his hulking six-foot-two frame, and he headed out to his truck. But James never made it to work that day. Cheryl did, in fact, get up for school in time, and she began her morning routine of taking care of the family dog that they had left, um, cleaning, getting breakfast ready for her and her sister, and the first thing she had to do was let the dog out and use, to use the bathroom. But before she went to open the front door, she peered through the curtains that covered the glass panels. It took a moment for her to register, but she saw her father laying in the driveway. She ran outside and screamed. He was face down on the concrete. There was blood everywhere. So she was thinking that he must have slipped on the ice. Oh, maybe like hit his head or something. Yeah. Okay. So she started screaming, daddy, daddy, like trying to wake him up. And there was no response. In a panic, she ran to the neighbor's house. She said, Daddy's lying in the driveway. I don't know what to do. And the neighbor, who knew the family well, told Cheryl to go be with her sister and that they would call the police. So at around 7 a.m., the Suffolk County Police Department and Fire Department responded to the call. The Fire Department, having brought EMT responders, are going to try and work to give first aid to James Pearson, 
And in order to administer CPR, they had to turn him on his back. When they did this, it became clear why this man was incapacitated. He hadn't slipped on the ice. He had a gunshot wound in his head. One gunshot? In his head. But then there were holes in his jacket, which was soaked in blood, which led them to believe that he'd been shot. What? Wait, but nobody heard anything? Nobody heard the shots. How many shots are we talking about here? We'll get into it. Okay. Later, three small caliber casings will be found in the driveway. And this was definitely not what they thought they were arriving to deal with. And Cheryl also at this point didn't know that her father had been murdered. She was still thinking that he had died because he fell on the ice. Like she, and she wasn't understanding. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it's winter. He could have fell on and right. hit his head on a, on the on the pavement. I mean, yeah. yeah. But this definitely wasn't a fall. I mean, this man has been murdered in his own driveway. And the detectives who were called to the scene now had to have a very difficult conversation with two girls, right, sixteen and seven, that eight days shy of the one year anniversary of their mother's death. Their father had been killed while they were sleeping in their beds. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you just lost two parents in a matter of a year. Yeah. Oh, man, that sucks. I mean, it doesn't seem like a good person, but still, like, it's still a parent. Well, you think about Hmm. it. This is what's holding the family together. Yeah. Right, because they're both underage. So now is there another family member that's going to step up or is child protective services going to have to put them into foster care and then they get separated or is the brother going to step up? Like it's just, it, it's chaotic. Well, the brother is of age. He's he a legal could, age. Technically. Yeah, he could. So detectives had their work cut out for them. And at first there were two scenarios in their head. First, this was unplanned. Residential neighborhoods have a lot of car thieves like people who will just walk up to cars and driveways, see if they're open, steal what's ever inside, things like that. Or it could have just been a potential robbery taking place in the neighborhood. You know, surprisingly, statistically, most robberies happen in the early morning hours, not necessarily in the middle of the night, like after people first leave for work. So could he have confronted somebody who was trying to do one of these things? So that was kind of the first thought process they had. However, this seems to be unlikely because these crimes aren't really committed in such bad weather conditions. Like usually the criminals that commit these crimes like quick and easy, like they just want to get away. Right, because it's not easy to get away if it's snowing or if it's icy. Your getaway car is harder, especially back then because cars weren't as good. Um, and you got to run away. You don't want to slip and break your head either. Right, imagine. Um, yeah, you go kill that guy and then you fall on ice and kill yourself. You know, you wind up dying. Um, that would be crazy. But I will say, I, I want to throw a red flag here because I know we're in the early stages of the investigation, but I think that I think it's very important to point out that you do technically have people that could be suspects. You have the son Junior, um, James, Jr. James Jr. I mean, he is in and out of the home. I just want to point this out now. No, um, go for you it. know, he's definitely in and out of the home. I he knows what goes on in there. I'm sure. You know, you have the boyfriend of Cheryl who could possibly be 
I mean, at this early stages, I mean, he, I don't know if she's been open with him about how what it's like in the home, but Rob Cuccio. I feel like it would it would eventually happen that they would have that kind of conversation if he's like in love with her or whatever. So could he do it because he loves her so much and is trying to protect her that he's willing to kill for her? Okay. So that's a possibility. So those are the two things I'm going to throw out right now. All right. Yeah. I like him. Yeah. Now, they really don't think this first scenario went down. They don't think this is just some random killing. They really think it was a planned attack. Like someone who was familiar with James's schedule was waiting for him. And when he came out, he was ambushed because James Pearson is a really big guy. I mean, he's 6'2". He's just always described as like burly, big very athletic type so somebody would have to ambush him especially if they were smaller than him and catch him by surprise if they were trying to attack him or if he thought they weren't he wasn't expecting that right you know like who are you like you know if it was just kind of some you know i don't know this guy yeah what's up what do you want and then Mm -hmm. bang 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 and then I, yeah. I like the way you played that out. That was <laughs> well, because I could see him like open up the front door, being you know, walk it out and be like, yo, what's up? What, you know, because he's from Long Island. Yeah. You know, he, hey, what's going on? What do you want? Why are you on my property? Why are you by my van or whatever, or car or whatever? Right. And then that takes place. You just described a scenario that would probably take place with you. No. <laughs> yes. That's not how I Because you were it. thinking about your van. Okay. <laughs> well, I figured he's an electrician. He might have a van. He definitely does have a van. Right? Yes. So, I don't know. That's why. So, now the detectives have to figure out, because they don't know all this wonderful information that you know just yet. Well, it's easier for me. Yeah. Because. I'm laying it all out there for you. But they're trying to figure out, like, because now he looks like this innocent guy. Who is going to want to murder a recent widow and father of two, three children? Um, Yeah, there's not many people that would, which would. If if I was to think about that, I would say, okay, well, maybe there's something more going on here um, to make this take place. Exactly. So although it's difficult, they know, obviously, that Cheryl's been through a lot and is in pain, but they need to speak with her to see if she could think of anyone who would want to hurt her father. And Cheryl is obviously still in shock that her father has been murdered at all. When she spoke with them, she really wasn't making sense. For example, she kept commenting that the detective was wearing the same cologne that she had bought for her boyfriend. Um, her anxiety was clearly through the roof, and they just kind of wanted to get through the basics with her. She said she didn't know anyone who would have wanted to murder her father, and that she really couldn't remember anything about finding his body, that it all seemed like it, it was a blur. So it was kind of hard for her to help in that moment. So they ask her if they could search the home to maybe find anything that might help them. And she agreed. Well, the search did not yield any clues, just more questions, usually as they always do. First, law enforcement, just by glancing around at the surroundings, were confused as to how a man who worked as an electrician. Now, yes, union electricians in New York make good money, especially if they do solo work as well but this went kind of beyond that remember james lived in long island very expensive he has two daughters very expensive and he had a wife who had a long-term illness that required dialysis also expensive so how did he have all of these lavish things as well electronics expensive decor 
clothing, anything you could think of. It seemed suspicious. So they did a little digging, maybe more than they should have, based on just asking a 16-year-old girl who just lost her father if she could, they could search her home. A little more digging than they should. And in doing so, they found various hiding places throughout the home. They found weapons, a lot of weapons. Some of these weapons included Uzi submachine guns and illegal attachments for weapons. This was most definitely not what they were expecting to find. They were looking for clues as to who the criminal was that killed James Pearson, but now it's looking like the victim himself was a bit of a criminal. Okay, see, I don't like where this is going because I think that they're, because they actually, see, in my opinion, because they actually dug deeper than they should have, now they're going to be trying to piece things together that have no correlation. See, for me, I don't think that that has a correlation because I think the fact that there's guns in a house might be truly because he's selling them, maybe. Yeah. But you got you can't forget a couple of things here, though. I don't know what union he was in, but let's just I'll just say local three, right? They're a very they're like the largest electrician union I think in the in the boroughs. Okay, um, they're a very strong union and they get paid a lot of money. I wouldn't be surprised if he was ma- making like uh, anywhere from like a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars back in nineteen eighty five or nineteen eighty six, which is a lot of money back then. And he's doing solo jobs. And he's doing solo jobs on the side. And if he has these weapons in the house. They're not for casual home defense. He's most likely selling them. Right. Okay? But that doesn't mean that he's made enemies that are going to shoot him with a small caliber gun. That makes no sense to me. Well, that's easy to conceal and quieter. But but once again, this shouldn't even be at the forefront of it because a 16-year-old girl gave confirmation, yeah, go search my home. You know, so it's like, are you really going to make that connection off of digging where you're not supposed to be? And also, it's Suffolk County, okay? These guys are all paid way too much money, and they have a, they have a, they're notorious for like getting into shit they probably shouldn't pay. You, if you want, just take a little breather. Google search. No, (laughs) always take a breather. Um, take a little Google search. How much Suffolk County police? It would blow your mind. It would uh, blow yeah. your mind. It's insane. You really should look into doing that. We could live in Selden, Listen, New York, honestly, and we could have all that and, stuff. And it's not just Suffolk <laughs> County. It's it, it's also uh, Nassau County. But both make extremes amounts of money. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's exorbitant. Listen, but, but back in 1986, they weren't dealing with what police officers now are dealing with because Long Island does have a big gang problem right yeah. now. Well, and also... I know we're getting into yeah, a territory we don't yeah. need to get into, but I mean, listen, not that it's not warranted. I mean, police do great work. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just trying to say compared to other police forces oh, within no, the area, it's even weird. the starting salaries, like double that of what it would be to work in the NYPD. If you want, yeah, in the NYPD, it's like 42,000. Yeah. It's like starting salaries. It's like, like 70. 000. No, I think it's like 75,000. I think to start out maybe 80 or whatever. But that, that's an ex- And that's more than I make as a, year 10 teacher yeah i just i'm like man man if i didn't have like metal in my spine i'd probably would do, go do that you know <laughs> i don't know if you'd pass the i would uh, never the pass psyche a phys- vow. what <laughs> oh come on i wouldn't I'm just kidding I'm all just right kidding. you would i'll let it slide okay but that's good that you brought up that point because the police knew that they had been given permission by cheryl 
but permission to search in hiding places from a 16-year-old girl who just found out her father had been murdered and was emotionally distressed was probably not going to hold up in court. So they chose to stop their searches when they found these illegal weapons and they wanted to get a proper warrant from a judge. Sounds like a great idea, guys. Yes. So while they were waiting for the warrant to come in, they looked into who James Pearson was and any police records that they might have on him. They also spoke to people who knew James. He was described as an intimidating figure. He definitely had a commanding presence. And if he ever felt like he had been wronged in some way, he would get violent. Now, these assertions about him were all corroborated by police reports. James owned some property upstate that he collected rent on. I know what you're thinking. Okay, maybe that helped him afford his lavish lifestyle. But after the taxes and the mortgage that he had to pay on those properties, it was really maybe a couple hundred dollars a month, if that. And I think they they were more like long-term investments, these properties. But if anyone who was renting these properties from him didn't pay their rent, he would go to the property and shoot at their cars or whatever kind of property they had outside. Okay, that's a little extreme. Yeah. So there were reports to prove that this had taken place. And on top of that, the police were able to talk to the tenants who kind of explained these situations and and how kind of terrifying they were. He was violent and scary. And it seemed the only friends he had The only people that had decent things to say about him were his daughters and the business partners that he had or the attorneys that he kept on retainer. So their thought process from here was maybe that James had bullied the wrong person and they got retribution by shooting him. It didn't seem outside the realm of possibility based on how he treated people. And then the warrant comes in, and they get to do a little bit more digging into the house. Meanwhile, the girls, Cheryl and Joanne, are staying with their grandmother, who has now taken guardianship over them since they're both uh, minors. In this second search of the home, more weapons are found, as is a little black book. And this book belonged to James Pearson because he put his name in the book. Um... And in this book, there's a list of names with dollar amounts listed next to them. So now they're thinking that maybe he has all this extra money on top of potentially selling guns um, because he's working as a bookie and he's either doing this solo or he's doing it for organized crime for the mob. Okay. And we know that in the 1980s, organized crime was running rampant in the 1980s and it would be interesting uh to have someone selling guns like running guns outside of the boroughs because it would be unsuspecting right that a middle class house would hold guns for sale which makes and it would be easier to stop there do the sale right and then go yeah correct then just leave i mean listen it's all allegedly but like i'm well i mean the book kind of makes it more real but or or that could just be because he's he's collecting 
like bets. Maybe. I mean, we really don't know, but no. I mean, allegedly that he's selling guns, but it does that the book is a big indicator that he's collecting on something. Well, they think he's either collecting debts or he's working as a bookie. Yeah. Either way, um it it could explain why he had all of this extra money. But the way the records were kept, obviously they're used to finding like records like this and it seemed to indicate that he was more of a bookie than anything else and that's how they thought he afforded what was later confirmed as because now he's passed away right so he has an estate the estate was estimated to be a little over one million dollars in 1986 that's insane it's a lot of money yeah But the real finds within the second search were found in the home's garage. Inside, they found more expensive electronics, some unopened. So maybe he was also selling that merchandise as well. Motorcycles, antique cars, and most suspiciously, a recording system that was tied in with the phone lines of the home, meaning he was recording all of the phone conversations that were taking place in the house. So was he blackmailing someone? A business partner? The mob? Wow. There's a lot of layers to this guy. And we're starting to peel him back. Yes. I feel like there's more here. This is interesting. Well, thanks. I find him. Leave it to you, huh? I know. (laughs) It takes a while, but I get the good one. Yeah, this is good. In order to solve this homicide, they're going to need to find out more about their victim. And they felt as if his associates and family were not being as honest as they could have been. So they decided to do a second round of interviews. They asked Cheryl to explain her father's lifestyle. The book, the phone system, the guns, they didn't get it. But Cheryl was of little help. Although she didn't seem surprised about any of the things they found, She didn't know about them. She did say that her father was not the best man. Her brother no longer lived in the house because he had been so strict and degrading towards him. He was very strict when it came to her as well. She had to live under his rule now that her brother was gone. And because her sister was so young, she was the one that had to deal with it all. Um, Some of his bizarre rules included, like, she was kind of explaining to detectives, like, this is how crazy my father was. Like, when they sat down for mealtimes, they were not allowed to speak. So 6 p.m., always dinner, sitting at the table, you can't speak while we're eating dinner. Then your drink, you're not allowed to take a sip of whatever drink you have, water, iced tea, a juice, Unless you've completely finished with your whole entire meal. Then there were rules as to how you would have to eat this meal. So you were given a serving of meat, a vegetable, and a starch of some kind. Whether it was rice, potatoes, you know, pasta, whatever it is. You had to eat counterclockwise on your plate. So you would take one bite of meat. You would take a bite of whatever starch it was. A bite of a vegetable. Then you'd have to go back to the meat starch vegetable and you'd have to do that until your plate was completely empty and you had to finish your plate even if you didn't like what was on it 
I would say for most people, <laughs> that is in that's an insane amount of rules to follow just at the dinner table. And and Cheryl did admit that she thought that her father knew that these rules were insane because he didn't tell other people about them. But he did it because he wanted to show his control over oh, the yes. house. To insert dominance is this guy's middle. His middle name should be Dominance because yes. he honestly, I mean, you wouldn't do that. You have no reason to do that mm-hmm. um, to that extent. So it's just to control. It is. And she admitted to detectives that if any of his rules, now rules like this extended throughout their daily life. And if any of these rules were not followed, Cheryl would be beaten. Oh, all right. That's really sad. And really, the, these beatings didn't extend to Joanne yet. Yet? Yet. Okay. But now that her brother was gone, it meant she was the, the punching bag so, okay, of the great. family. So now she also has additional pressure because now she has to follow these rules. And if she, something goes wrong now, she takes the brunt of it because she doesn't want her, her little sister to ever have, ever to. have abuse. So that's even worse now. Yeah. That's that's crazy. So family and the few friends, I guess, really business associates, said that they were all scared of James. Everyone except for his mother. His mother's going to maintain that her son was a great person. Um, They all said that he was quick to anger. They knew a few people um, that owed him money. But they were all paying him back as they were supposed to because they were all too scared not to because he was so intimidating and they knew that he would get violent if they didn't. Then they asked about the money. How did James have all of these things and all of this money? And um, some did admit to knowing about one of James' side hustles. So in addition to selling goods, selling electronic devices, and being a bookie, most likely, based on the black book that was found, there was another side hustle. Okay. In his union jobs, like when he was working for a company, he was stealing material. So he was scalping. Okay. And then he yeah. was using that material. On his side jobs. Lights, wires, on his side jobs. Right. So he never had to pay for those materials so everything he got was cash from the side jobs it was all profit yeah. it was all profit yeah that happens all the time that's that's not that's not just a, like a uh, that even happens now you know you when you when you get when you have people that work on those kind of jobs and you have people in certain positions that always takes place whether it be like oh scrap steel you know str- uh, scrap copper these shit these things go missing either that or the money that was used, that was given in exchange for those scraps also goes missing. That happens all the time. That's nothing okay. new. That This is very typical, common practice within the, well, I shouldn't say the unions. Common practice within people who might be employed. Who who do some bad things. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. happens. No, I understand what you're saying. Or I sometimes, guess. listen, and then, and then truthfully, there's times where companies don't care too often. I remember I worked for one company where a lot of the steel was removed from an old structure, and the money that was used, uh, well, I'm sorry, the steel was scrapped for money, and the money that we received was actually um, given to all of us to have like a, like a, like a lunch that was catered uh, from the company. Oh, that's So these nice. things happen. Like, it's not... Yeah. You know, maybe they didn't know about it all the time, yeah. but it does happen. Yeah, like he was like saying, like if he worked at one 
job site, he might say, I need, he might only need, just using lights as an example, I need 15 lights. Well, he may only need 10, but so he's going to take those extra five and have them for his side jobs. Right. Yeah. Happens. So, but that's fraud. So just putting it out there. John doesn't participate in those things. I never do that. I'm just saying, you, gotta, you, gotta, I, you say no. it so casually, so you well, want to put it out there that you don't do that. I do not. Yeah, disclaimer, <laughs> I don't do that. I don't, I don't need to do that. It, I like it how is you're looking practice. at me right now. I don't yeah. do that. I, I don't know what that's about. So the picture... No, I know, because you don't work on job sites anymore. No, of course not. Job. And even when I did, I never did that. Yeah. I was just... A, I was a little guy on a totem pole. I didn't count. You were just observing it I all. didn't count. Yeah, I just observe. So the picture of their victims was getting more clear as the suspect list was seeming to grow and grow, which, of course, is not good for the detectives. Next, the autopsy results come back. So James was shot five times from behind. And the reason why Cheryl wasn't able to see the gunshot wounds from behind was because um, the jacket was was like so saturated with blood that she couldn't see the holes. And the bullet wound from the back of his head was hidden by his hair. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. she was probably just in shock from seeing her father hit the floor. So now we know what weapon was used to kill him and how many times he was shot. And that he was shot from behind. So this definitely totally was an ambush. He never saw this coming. The following day, investigators received a call from a state trooper, Rob Cuccio's father, the boyfriend of the victim's daughter. He said that he had a tip for them. He knew through his son that James Jr., James Pearson's son, recently had a huge blowout with his father in which they had a physical fight. James Jr. left the house officially, totally, forever, and James Pearson told him that he was completely cut out of his will. And that this big fight happened just about a month ago. So it, it is pretty recent, so emotions could still be high. He said he was calling because he wanted to help out with the investigation in any way possible. He knew how much pressure they were under. So, you know, they thanked him for the tip and followed up on it immediately. They went to go talk to James Jr. Had he killed his father before he could be cut out of his dad's will? which we know his estate is worth a million dollars. So even if that's split three ways, that's still a lot of money for 1986. It is. You know what's weird, though? On the, I'm kind of like doing this juggling act right now because I'm not – when I think about the boyfriend, the father who's a state trooper calling up could be two things. It could either be him knowing for 100% fact that his son did not have any involvement and just wants to help. Or is he going against the code and protecting his son and kind of making a diversion? That's an interesting point. Right? Yeah, it could potentially this, be. You know what I mean? Like you you have someone that ha- could have motive. You know about from your son that there was a blowout fight. So you're diverting attention. Are you diverting it? So I don't know. Well, James Jr. told police and, you know, they call him J- – James Jr. likes to be called Jimmy – because he wants to disassociate himself from his father in every way possible. Um, He said he hated living at home. He didn't get along with his father. James would hurt him all the time, both mentally and physically. And he always let him know that anything he did was never good enough. That 
no matter what Jimmy did, he would never be the man that he was. So he left because he couldn't take it anymore. He said he didn't care about the money. He just wanted out. And the detectives were really pulling no punches on this interview. They came out and asked Jimmy if he had killed his father. No, he said. I didn't have anything to do with it. And he certainly did seem like he was um, telling the truth because he really wasn't upset that his father died, but he really didn't seem to know what had happened to his dad. And to divert attention away from himself, he pointed the investigators in another direction. Maybe it was my sister and her boyfriend, he said. And he went on to tell them that once Rob Cuccio had asked him if he could find anyone who would murder his father. So it seems like uh, Rob Cuccio's father, his phone call is kind of blowing up in his face here because you're right. Now it seems to be the attention that was supposed to be diverted towards Jimmy is now back in Rob Cuccio's face. So there's motive there too. If James was this hulking, intimidating figure in Cheryl's life and he was abusive towards her, maybe Cheryl and Rob wanted him to die because then she would get a lot of money and be free of him. So the detectives thought that if they interviewed Cheryl about this, it could just get emotional. So they decided that they want to put pressure on Rob Cuccio. They're going to question the boyfriend about this. So the following day when Rob left Cheryl's grandmother's house after visiting her, the detectives pulled him over and asked him to come with them. They had some questions for him. And of course, he agreed to go. At the station, they began to ask him questions about the relationship his girlfriend and her father had. And uh, this boy has a lot to say. He said that James Pearson was very abusive to his children. He had heard about it. And he had witnessed it. He said the man had an evil side. Cheryl would get yelled at and hit all the time. He spoke about two incidents in the interrogation room specifically. He said that Mr. Pearson was very strict. And the only time he was ever allowed to see Cheryl, except for school, was if he went over to her house. And while he was at Cheryl's house, uh, Mr. Pearson watched them the whole time. And he had to leave the house by 8 p.m. He couldn't stay any later than that. Hmm. And then once, he said it was really rare, but um, Mr. Pearson allowed Cheryl to go to the movies with him. Which is crazy because, like, going to the movies for... He just likes to control, though. Now, at the so Rob Cuccio and Cheryl had been in a relationship for two years. They went to this one movie together. Yeah. I find that a little weird. Uh yes like she has a boyfriend but you're not letting her see him so i I don't know i feel that's very odd and very specific control almost like she's like she's my daughter not like your girlfriend she's my property it's very weird Mm -hmm. so then he goes on to and this like time at the movies was not exciting so they go they drive they get to the movies and halfway through the movie Rob Cuccio turns around and realizes James Pearson was sitting a few rows back. No. He was watching them the whole time. He wasn't watching the movie. He was watching them. Get out of here. No. So he had followed them and sat there to make sure. Oh, it just gives me the chills. It's so bizarre. 
See, this makes me feel bad about talking about the microchip thing that I was going to do. Yeah, see? Or, well, no, or that, John, trust me. I meant, Don't you well, whatever. No, that. no. One of our listeners said, you know, what about an air tag? That works too. And I love your idea. But you know what? Now, a little lesson based. But you know what? Now <laughs> I feel even bad for even wanting that now because this guy's being Mr. Creepo. I would never do that. Just so you know. We know, John. But, but listen, now I feel even bad. Like, oh my God, this is weird. Am I going to be the weirdo guy now? That's what I was telling you. You oh, can't be weird. I know you're warning me. But you know what? This guy's weird. Why would you do that? You never let them go anywhere. Let them be kids. I, let them, if they want a hanky-panky or whatever, or kiss or whatever. Hanky-panky. Just let it happen. Like, why do you got to be there? <laughs> okay, so another night when he was over the house. I'm trying to, like, uh, run away from your hanky-panky. Well, you don't like the hanky-panky? <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> All right, I didn't know what the. No, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. All right, all right. It happened. Just, it's good. Just, just, just whatever. It's and... fine. So another incident was he was over the house. You know, obviously this is before eight p.m., and they had just eaten dinner, with all of those weird rules. Let's not forget, and it was time for dessert. So Cheryl had prepared ice cream bowls for herself, her father, her sister, and Rob. Well, she gave Rob his bowl of ice cream before she gave her father his bowl of ice cream and James saw this as a sign of disrespect so he slapped Cheryl so hard that she fell to the ground Oof. in front of everybody that's so embarrassing yeah and and how dare you why you gotta hit her like that for well I mean that was nothing compared to what she really got you know uh, he would yeah. beat her all the time that's crazy so, and, and Rob just said, you know, my poor girlfriend is exhausted all the time because not only is she treated like crap, she has to do all of the housework. She's expected to do everything. So like Rob noticed that Cheryl was so tired at school because she's doing all of the cooking. She's doing all the cleaning. She's trying to have fun, be a teenager, like do cheerleading at school, maintain good grades. And it was just too much for her. Like, she would have bags under her eyes. So he off, like, he tried to help as much as he could. Like, he mowed the lawn for them so Cheryl didn't have to do that. And he was trying. He's like, my girlfriend is just being so abused. He was a bad guy. That's really sad. And this is all detectives needed to hear for them to think even more. that Because this kind of hurts Rob right in the interrogation room so now he they're like well actually this guy has a super motive to commit this crime because of how bad this man has been to his girlfriend he does but there's something that saves him here and i think it's it's i'm sure it's very widely overlooked okay from the sense that i'm getting of his character i think that he's a very intelligent and respectful young man and I don't think that he would ever do anything to tarnish his father, who's a who's a state trooper. Okay. And I think that that is, in my head, what's making me think now that maybe he did not do anything up to this point. Okay. I could be completely wrong. But I think that he would never do anything to make his father look bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, he I'm, does I'm, seem and to I, have signs yeah. of respect. And I'm basing it off saying. of all the respect. I'm basing it off of the time period. I'm basing it off of, like, how he treats his girlfriend. I think he's a stand-up guy and wouldn't do that. Okay. Well, now that Rob Cuccio has kind of opened up to them, the detectives start to put more and more pressure on him. 
and they continue to ask him over and over again if he had been the one to shoot James. And finally, under enormous pressure, Rob caved. He said, I know I didn't do it because I paid the guy who did. Wait, what? What? He paid somebody to do it? Yeah. What are you doing? Oh, jeez. Okay. But you're underestimating the power of young love, John. And, like, look at what he had to witness. So I think you're right in your assertion in saying that Rob Cuccio has a chivalrous side to him and, and a true idea of what is right and what is wrong. And what James Pearson was doing was wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I do. But now, it, okay, but paying somebody to do it yes. is also not good. No, no, no. So he said that he had spoken with someone in his homeroom about killing James Pearson, and he had agreed to give the 16-year-old $400 to do it. He said that it was not Cheryl's fault and that he had talked her into doing it and he didn't want to get her in trouble. But Cheryl was in trouble. The detectives then brought Rob with them to Cheryl's grandmother's house to arrest her for solicitation of murder. Can you imagine? They're like, and by the way, your boyfriend told on you and you see her. Oh like, my that's God. up. <laughs> the hell? This is insane. So Cheryl would later state in an interview that she remembered the police showing up at her grandmother's house and she saw Rob behind them and she just knew what had happened. She knew that like this was kind of over. And ashamed and terrified, he said to Cheryl, I told them everything. So this is conspiracy to make murder here, these two. So Cheryl's grandmother came in and asked what was going on. And one detective, as he's cuffing Cheryl, said, your granddaughter's under arrest for the murder of your son. Well, first, can I be honest here? Yeah. I would have said, all right, Grandma, you you might want to sit down for this before I said it. (laughs) Come on. Anyone's grandma out there, you're gonna let them stand up for that? I, they're devastated. They just lost. They just lost their their son, and now they are conspiring to kill here. Well, she you gotta give her a heads up. Sit do. her down. I just know. sit her down, poor old lady. Aww. Her legs are gonna give out from hearing news well, like that. Well, she does freak out, and the whole time they're taking the two teenagers to the police car, she's screaming from inside the house, just devastation. Of course, of course she is. Yeah. This is crazy news. Sit her down. Uh, they should they should Let her drink her a little down. water. Yes. She's going to buckle at the knees. All right, well, I'm glad you're sitting down now for this part. I'm always sitting down. What else, could you imagine if I was standing every time for the podcast? <laughs> that would be terrible. Come on, that would not work. Your back would hurt really bad. Of course it would. So at this point, Cheryl's in the interrogation room. And she lets it all fly. And it is really bad. What do you mean? Well, she admitted that it was all true. But what Rob was saying was not the story. Like Rob was trying to, and Sweet Baby Angel was trying to minimize her involvement. She said it was it was really all me. He's trying to say it was him because he's trying to... Take responsibility. Take responsibility. Okay. But she's saying it was all me. Okay. Okay. So she goes on to tell a tale to the detectives and it's going to be a rough one. So this is based on what she told the detectives and what 
I read from a book that we're going to link in the show notes, but I don't want to give away too much of it because it'll tell, but it's intense. Okay. So James Pearson was more than just a protective father. He was an abuser, a manipulator, and a rapist. What? Since her mother had gotten sick, he had been forcing her to do sexual things with him. Are you serious? Yes. He said now that her mother could not do these things, that it was her duty to do these things. No, no, no. And it had been happening since she was 12 years old. Oh, my God. Doesn't it make sense about how he was with her and the boyfriend Yes, and then the whole... Oh, he was probably triggered by the Valentine's Day thing, too, probably. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay, speechless. So she explained that it all began when her mother had done that first nine-month stint in the hospital. Like, he had asked her to do things that were... And this is, remember, when she was 10, but the actual physical sexual abuse didn't take place till 12. But... It was a bit of a drive for them to make each day to go see her mother in the hospital. And because Joanne was still so young, Jimmy would stay home. And on the ride to and from the hospital, her father would make her sit next to him in the truck and make her um, have her hand on his penis the whole ride. James used tactics of coercive control to isolate Cheryl and force her to do things she never wanted to do. For example, he told her that he was always watching her. He knew her high school principal well, and the two had, Cheryl knew, gone to school together. And he stated that the principal was watching her for him, and that if she ever stepped out of line or did anything he didn't like, he would know about it and she would be punished for it. Okay, great. So he's grooming her. Yeah. Not only... With the whole things, all the things taking place in the car ride to her sick, dying mom. But also now, he he has created zero safe place for her to be. Exactly. She always thought that it was an escape to be at school to get away, but it was not. Because he made her believe the principal was watching. And later as adult, she has reflected that most likely this, well, this was definitely not true. But what James Pearson was doing was creating a constant state of panic for Cheryl that she was always scared and she had to abide by his rules. This poor girl, her mind was never at ease. No. I can't believe it. And in addition to that, there were the listening devices. Wait, are you telling me that the the devices were to see if she would tell somebody on the phone? No, or just what she was saying to Rob on the phone. Oh, my God. This woman, this girl was a a prisoner in that house. Yes. And even outside of it, too. Yeah. So Cheryl was initially unaware of her father's listening devices, like him recording all the phone calls that took place in the house. Until one day, she was on the phone with Rob. This is when they had first started dating. So they met um, in the beginning of their sophomore year. So she was like 15 years old when they met. And the two of them were on the phone. She was home alone. And there was like this innocent teenager joking thing about ice cream. Like she told him she was eating ice cream. He asked her. 
she was licking the cone and he said he wanted to be the ice cream cone. Like it was just like a cute cute little like Mm -hmm. joke that they had. Yeah. Well, that night Cheryl was making dinner and when her father came home, he headed to the garage like he always did right away. She never knew what he was doing in the garage. Well, when he came back, his face was bright red with anger and he repeated the phone conversation back to her. Wow. And then he beat her. What a horrible human being. Yes. Yeah, so, what a monster. So now she knows she's not even safe on the phone. No. Well, she's not safe anywhere. Yeah. And now she's probably thinking, are there listening devices in the house? Like, you know, when you're a kid and you're told all of these things and you are in a coercively controlling situation, you believe the unbelievable because you are kept in a constant state of chaos and fear. So your brain is not thinking or performing logically. So I know you have a lot of questions. Um, Like if this was all happening, why would James let her date Rob? Like why wouldn't he just say you're not allowed to date Rob? Well, he needed to. The sexual abuse of Cheryl happened, began when she was 12 years old. James hid this well from the family and at it really kind of started at 10 but the rape began to occur when she was 12 so at 12 cheryl was easy to control and manipulate but as his victim got older it became more difficult to physically control cheryl right it was she could fight back so he needed leverage He allowed Cheryl to date Rob under the condition that they only hung out at their house where he could watch them the whole time. And on the rare occasion that he let them go out, she would have to do extra things for him. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Unfortunately. Um, And then her relationship with Rob became a bargaining chip. He would say things to her like, you have to have sex with me if you want to keep seeing Rob. Or any gifts that Rob would give Cheryl, he would take away and only give back to her if he she would have sex with him. And then Rob, you know, innocently would be like, oh, you're not wearing the necklace I got you. You know what I mean? Yeah. What a sick... F- I can't... It's disgusting. You're supposed to be... Listen, I, I have to say this. You are supposed to be the parent that they look up to, okay? That they respect of course but you're supposed to be there for your children yeah you are hurting them at such a deep level in so many ways that you don't what is wrong with you you're a monster a monster is the best way to say it yeah why do that these are children that have lost their mother okay yeah look to you for guidance and support because they need it and you have done everything in your power to ruin them even further than they already have gotten to yeah, and I think it's pretty clear that he's a monster in, in all aspects of his life because he, like, you know, a lot of times you see abusers like this and they're able to put this facade on and they do have this, like, great outside life. But James Pearson was a monster even in his outside life, too, is where he didn't have friends. People were terrified of him. Like, he was yeah. a true bully. Well, most people probably would have said to themselves, you know, well, this is why I find this weird. If this is how he is on the outside, what the hell is going on inside the house? Because if I was his cared. neighbor, I would, well, that's really horrible. But if I was his neighbor and I saw what how he conducted himself mm-hmm. on a day-in and day-out basis outside of his home, mm-hmm. 
I would question, well, I wonder what the hell he's doing inside. But this was 1986. When people, it was, that's your, that's your home. That's your business. Man, that triggers me. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm not, like, I get that. I mean, I understand that, you know, in, to a point, like, you don't want to yeah. get involved because you don't want to get hurt because this guy's a little off the rails, but. But call the proper authorities. Do something. Yeah. Like, well, oh, wait. God, that triggers me so badly. You're going to get more mad. All right. Because <laughs> this only gets okay. <laughs> So he would rape his daughter sometimes up to three times a day. Cheryl told the detectives that she would sometimes try to fight off her father's advances, but when she would do that, he would sulk around the house, and his sulking would always turn to anger, and the anger would always turn to her getting beaten and then violently raped. So that's why she stopped refusing his advances, because it it would only mean she would be mentally tortured for the whole day, then physically beaten, and then violently raped. So she got to this place where she would just put a pillow over her face and try and disassociate herself from the experience by thinking of something else like um, what was due at school the next day or she would ask in her head for her mother's forgiveness because she felt so guilty like she was betraying her mother in some way yeah this is just ridiculous i mean it's insane. it's so insane and gross and disgusting you know to do this I, I i just i i cannot wrap my brain around this i know it's, it's so disgusting trust me i, I know. feel really bad for her so he would often tell her to enjoy this pretend like i'm rob he would say and she said that that made doing sexual things with Rob difficult and she kind of didn't want to have sex with her boyfriend for a very long time because she you know was ashamed of all the other things that were taking place in her life and it was hard to enjoy that when she's going through something like this and Rob is going to feel this you know like he's been around for over a year at this point, you know, when they start, you know, doing sexual things together and he'd seen a lot and he pieced things together from what he's experienced. Because like you said, he's a smart, smart boy. And he finally one day while they were fighting, because, you know, there were some things that Cheryl was very like upset about. And he finally said to her, like, I know. Like he said, I know what your father makes you do. And she was just ashamed, devastated, but also relieved to be able to talk about and tell the secret. Yeah, I'm sure that took a lot of pressure off of her. And for her to kind of, like, I'm sure she was, like, petrified for him to maybe turn his back on her. Well, again, say, like, because she, she, and this is never, like, the victim's fault ever but she felt disgusting and she felt like she was a horrible person because that's how sexual abusers make you feel like it's your fault so she was scared that rob was gonna see her that different light yeah and he didn't he he listened to her he he let her confide in him cry about it and she revealed another reason why she let her father do what he did Because he also always threatened that if she wasn't around to do this, that he would start to abuse Joanne. 
And Joanne was getting to the age where she was when the abuse started. So she really did believe that he would do that. And that was why she felt stuck forever. She would have to do this until Joanne was 18 and could leave the house. It's like, I don't want to say responsibility. I don't know what the right mm-hmm. word is, but like she, she feels responsible to take uh, to take all the abuse mentally, physically, you know, everything. Yeah. So that way that younger kid, her sister doesn't have to experience any of it. Right. And it's, it's commendable, but it's just unfortunate. It's sad. That that has to even happen. like In that way. Yeah. yeah. She also told him that when her mother died, her mother hadn't known about the abuse because it would happen when she was in the hospital, um, when she was alive. But then when her mother passed away, things got even worse. So like when her mother died, not only was she mourning the death of her mother, but now what was going to happen to her all the time. And... She even, like, admitted that when her mother died, like, at the funeral, when she was looking over her casket, she apologized to her mother for what was happening because she felt like it was her fault. But then she also promised her mother, I'll always protect Joanne. It's so sad. It is. And it it was also kind of like she'll never be free of him because she's going to have to be there for a long time. Now, this is fucked up. This is what's totally messed up. We know it's bad. We don't have to dwell on it. But the detectives honestly weren't buying what Cheryl was saying. They thought she was lying. And this was 1986. And why most people don't report or talk about sexual abuse, especially incestual sexual abuse, because it was met with skepticism and ridicule. And it's that typical, not our house, not our problem, turn the other cheek mentality that really caused the PTSD that a lot of our parents' generation has. Because, like you said, a lot of people don't step in. So as you can imagine, it was hard for Cheryl to tell this story in a room with men her father's age that didn't believe a word she was saying. So that's why I had to get a lot of the other parts of the story from the book that Cheryl would eventually go on to write. The detectives asked Cheryl where the idea of murder had come from, and she said that in November of 1985, a local story had grabbed her attention. And this is the story of Beverly Wallace, which is wild, too. So just really quickly, I'm going to read for you a little excerpt from the New York Times about the Wallace case, and I think it's going to sound familiar to you. A woman who admitted to having hired an assassin to kill her abusive husband was spared prison by a judge who called the husband an animal whose treatment of his wife and their three daughters had been inhumane. The woman, 41-year-old Beverly Wallace of Mastic, was sentenced Thursday to five years probation after two of the daughters and family friends testified before a judge in Suffolk County Court and after the prosecutor recommended no prison term. The witnesses depicted the husband, John Wallace, the leader of a Long Island motorcycle gang, as a bully who had beaten his wife and children and forced Mrs. Wallace to have sex with members of the gang while he watched. 
He also brought women into the house for orgies, made pornographic movies, and sold and used drugs, according to the testimony. What she went through with this guy was just unbelievable, Mrs. Wallace's attorney said. She has suffered enough. And the assistant district attorney said that he recommended no prison term because justice would not be served by sending the defendant to an upstate penitentiary. She has suffered enough, he added. But that doesn't mean you can go around shooting your spouse. But the Beverly Wallace case is unique. The Wallaces were married 23 years ago, authorities say, and Mr. Wallace was killed in January of 1985 when a gunman paid by Mrs. Wallace shot him eight times with a 22 caliber gun in the couple's driveway. Mrs. Wallace called the Suffolk County Police to report the shooting and was not arrested until a year later. Okay, so she's pretty much... It's... it's yeah. A sim- very similar case, and the victim even died in the same way. So now, this is what I feel is going to be complicated. The w- same way that judge had, you know, and, and you know, came down with his ruling, you know, that's one thing. But now I wonder what's going to happen here. Also, you have to think what the court of public opinion is going to be. Mm-hmm. I'm sure to this day there are people out there that are going to say that she's a murderer and she. She created this plot to have her father killed. 100%. But I think that there's so many other things that play a role in this. that You cannot just say, okay, she's a killer. Because anyone that says that, you try to put yourself in those shoes. You were were manipulated. You were brainwashed. You were controlled in every aspect of your life. Yeah. You were... Physically, uh, mentally, yes. emotionally, sexually you were prisoner. tortured. Yes, and that, of course. You were a prisoner. You were, taking, you were taken advantage of in every friggin' way. Yeah. So, of course, you want to be free of that. Now, I'm not justifying murder here, of course, but I think that it plays a different set of circumstances. This is really unique as well. I mean, what... I mean, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm sure you're going to tell me. But I think it's very important to just lay it all out because I think that it's not as cut and dry as she plotted a murder, it was carried out, she's guilty, bye. Agreed. I think it's very different here. It is. So, and I'm not saying, you know, I don't want to be that person that says, oh, he deserved it or any of like, the weird things like that because you get into like weird, like you get into weird spaces. But this is weird. <laughs> yeah, like sometimes you want to say, you know what? Someone like that doesn't deserve to be a member of society. But then we can't yeah. say, it. but it's a dangerous, slippery slope to say that People can just subjectively determine whether or not people deserve to live. Well, I don't know who said it or coined the phrase, but without any rules put in place, we're no better than animals. Right. So there are rules and there are laws and they're there for a reason. So it's complicated. So it is complicated. So Cheryl had figured after she heard that story of Beverly Wallace that what she had been through was justification for murder and I would feel the same way if I were Cheryl. Her life had been destroyed and she had no future because she would always be forced to satiate her father's needs until her sister was at least 18 and she was only seven. 
Could she endure another 11 years of this? It would mean she would never be able to marry. She would most likely not be able to have children. And there was nothing that she wanted more than to have a family. So the next morning in homeroom, she started talking about the case. She wanted to know what others thought about it. And everyone agreed. For doing what he did, that man, John Wallace, deserved to die. And she asked who would be crazy enough to kill someone for money. And she figured that no one would answer. A rhetorical question. But then the quiet kid that sat next to Cheryl Pearson, only because his name was Sean Pika, piped up and said, I would if the money was right. Come on, man. You imagine just alphabetically because you're put together. (laughs) Because Cheryl Pearson and Sean Pika never spoke to each other because they ran in different social circles in the high school. Right. That was the only thing that put them together. It was fate. I I actually thought about that this year when I was doing, because I always sit the kids by alphabetical order because it's the easiest way to take attendance and to learn their faces in the beginning of the year. And I'm like, oh, shit, like I could be like putting some crazy stuff in motion here. (laughs) So Cheryl said that she didn't know Sean. The two really hadn't talked much, but she was intrigued by his answer to the question she had posed. She was honest with him. And told him about the situation. She said everything. And he felt terrible for her. She asked him if he would kill her father. And he agreed. They discussed an amount of money. And the two of them settled on $1,000. And at the time, mind you, they're just 16. Like, they're about to turn 17. And Cheryl told Rob about this conversation, and Rob said he would talk to Sean Pika. And Rob did talk to Sean about this. And then when Rob went back to Cheryl, he said, like, yeah, he said he would do it, but I really don't think he's going to really follow through with it. So weeks pass after this conversation, and nothing happens. Cheryl endures more and more abuse and thinks that maybe one day Sean will do what he promised to do. Now, remember, their initial conversation is going to take place in November of 1985. And it was in early February, the day before the murder takes place, that Sean walked past Cheryl as she was cheering at a basketball game. And he said to her quickly, it's going to happen. I'm going to do it. Like she had kind of forgotten about it because it was that was four months ago. I think this is the biggest example of why children shouldn't be, like, charged with a crime, let's say. Because they don't even know what they're getting themselves into. So let me, like, think about that. All right, dude. Are you really going to sacrifice your entire life probably for $400 or $1,000? Well. He didn't have the mental capacity to understand what the hell he's doing. and I'm and I'm going to. I know it's hard for us as adults. We might have some listeners that are still in high school and totally understand. But when you are in high school, it consumes your entire life. And try to put yourself back in high school for a second. Not only are their brains not developed enough, their frontal cortexes are not developed enough to make good decisions. And Lord, that's what I have to tell myself every day when these idiots act a fool in my class. But (laughs) they cannot truly make good decisions because they're not equipped to do so yet 
now it's also 1986 the time when the breakfast club really was what high school was yeah okay oh yeah you have the popular cheerleader and super cool rob cuccio asking you the quiet kid who really you know keeps to himself whatever for help she has confessed her deepest darkest secret to you and her boyfriend alone and you can save them so now he's wrestling with oh my god cheryl's relying on me like this kid's life has been in turmoil for four months because he knows what's happening in this girl's home life and he feels he's the only one that can save her he has admitted that he really didn't want to kill james pearson but he was too scared and afraid to tell them he wasn't doing it it was easier for him to actually just commit the murder so this I, poor kid i'm gonna ask you a question okay do you believe that he was a pawn for them and he was taken advantage of inadvertently yeah i feel like cheryl and rob maybe did not have ill intent towards sean pika but they were desperate in their situation and when you're in your own desperate situation, you kind of reach for anything you can. And that was Sean Pika. And they kind of pulled him down in the quicksand with them. Yeah. I think it was inadvertent. But yeah, he was. Got it. So after Sean tells Cheryl at the basketball game that he's actually going to do it, the next morning he waited outside of the Pearson house until James came out to go to work. And then he shot him from behind. And once the six foot two man fell to the ground, he walked up to him and to ensure that he was dead, he shot him in the head and then he ran away. And a few days after the murder, Rob met with Sean. And this is where the $400 comes from. Rob only had $400 cash on him. The rest was in his banks. So he said he gives him $400 and he said, we have to wait until things cool down a bit and I can get you the rest of the money. But this is the 400 cash I have right now. Okay. And like Sean agreed to that. So after Cheryl and Rob told the police that it had been Sean Pika who had shot James Pearson, he was arrested as well. The three teenagers were arraigned on February 13th, the anniversary of Cheryl's mother's death. The town of Selden really all of Suffolk County, went wild. The town was divided. Some believe that James Pearson deserved to die for what he had done to Cheryl. And others thought that she was lying and just wanted to inherit the money. And people were really calling her horrible things. And in retaliation, backed against a wall, with her attorneys, Cheryl claimed that she could prove once and for all that her father had been sexually abusing her. She was pregnant, and her father was the father of the child. Are you kidding me? And, of course, the media is going to go wild with this news. This is crazy. This is so insane. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. So a division also existed within the family. Cheryl's brother supported her and believed her 100% because he knew the horrific things his father was capable of. But her grandmother, the mother of James Pearson, was very vocal in the fact that she didn't believe Cheryl. 
she said her son would never do this, that um, she could never believe that her son would molest his daughter. And in an interview with the New York Times, she said that even if the Virgin Mary came down and told her that he did it, she wouldn't believe her. And at this point, Cheryl had revealed that, you know, she was ashamed and mortified. Right now, the whole country knows what happened to her. And the stigma around incestual sexual abuse is way different in 1986 than it is today. It can say that we, for the most part, when it comes to this, live in a better world of understanding and knowing what familial sexual abuse looks like, what course of control is. And back then it was, mm, maybe you're lying. That was more of the mindset. And, and it's known as like, this is a family's dirty little secret that should never be talked about. That's the mindset, that it's now the victim's fault that this came out because she said something. And it was a don't air your dirty laundry kind of thing. And Cheryl feels ashamed, but she feels like she has to defend herself. She doesn't want the country to know that she's pregnant and the baby could be her father's, but that's her reality. And she's kind of saying to everyone, like, this is what I have to live with. And this is why I did what I did. Yeah. How many times in my life would I have to go through this in the future? It's kind of like um, like all the rumors that were happening when we covered Hinter Kafak. Yes. Right? Yes, yes, and, and yes. So whether it's 1929 or 1986, it's, you know, it's... Isn't it sick, though, yeah. that it's the same mentality? Yes. Ugh. That's, that's a callback, huh? First episode? Yes, it is. Yeah. That was a good one. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the case was sensationalized in the media and whenever there were court appearances happening there were a crowd of reporters film crew photographers during every stage the prosecution is going to say that cheryl hated how controlling her father was she wanted to be with rob she wanted the money and in order to get away with it all they would have someone else do their dirty work And they believed that Cheryl concocted all of these allegations to garner sympathy from a jury. That's what their claim is going to be. So throughout the trial, Rob and Cheryl remain in a relationship. They stay together through this whole time. They never break up. Um, Both of them make bail. Rob's family pays for his bail. Cheryl's brother pays for her bail. And... Unfortunately, Sean Pika's family didn't have a lot of money, so it took them two weeks to get the money to pay for his bail, which is so sad because I feel like he's such a victim in this case as well. So while awaiting trial, Cheryl suffered from very heavy vaginal bleeding and had to be rushed to the hospital where it was determined that she suffered a miscarriage. Because she claimed that her father was the father of the child, It would help her defense if a DNA sample was taken. So it was. But it was determined that Rob was actually the father of the child. It's like she didn't know who the father was, but she assumed that maybe it's my father because she was having somewhat protective sex with Rob and her father wasn't allowing So all these people now are probably in the woodwork saying all these nasty rumors not and being completely insensitive saying that they did it to cover up the fact that she was pregnant probably exactly you know all this other crap exactly. and that's and that's exact that's the the injustice of this whole thing is you have a victim here who has gone through hell and that is the way that you're going to be towards a victim 
I'm so glad we are far removed in certain ways to that because that just shows the growth of all of us as a society as a society because that is so heart-wrenching that someone goes through that and your first thing is oh well that was a concocted plan and and you know what there was sort of a plan to get rid of the father yes but but the abuse wasn't uh, lied about you can't take away that you can't take away all the the misdeeds that were going on and another thing is now you have people watching and because of the way Cheryl's treated, they might be in a similar situation, whether it's with um, their father or another family member or just somebody else. They're going through sexual abuse and they're thinking, why would I come forward? I don't want to be treated like that. Of course. And then that stops people from coming forward. Yep. Yep. So um, obviously the fact that the DNA sample was revealed to be Rob's like the child, it's going to hurt her defense. So because of this, her lawyer suggested that they attempt to make a deal with the prosecution instead of going to trial. Let's just try to plead down. So it's offered that if Cheryl pled down to manslaughter, that a judge would determine her sentencing. She agreed in hopes that the judge would consider the mitigating circumstances like they did in the Wallace case. So that means there's no longer going to the trial stops. Rob Cuccio and Sean Pika also take their pleas. Rob takes a plea for solicitation and Sean takes a plea for manslaughter. On April 7th, 1987, they were both sentenced. Rob was sentenced to five years probation because remember Rob's interaction was very limited. He had one talk with Sean, and then he paid him the 400 Sean Pika received 24 years in prison. Right, cool. So the quiet kid, the, the I don't want to say poor. That but only the, was involved in this for four months. Right. So the less fortunate kid that comes from this less fortunate family, okay, yeah. who's quiet and not as, you know, like everybody else now gets – you know, gets his whole entire life ripped from him because of one bad call that a 16 year old makes. Yeah. It's just like, it's, it's really unfortunate for, for from him a too. conversation that happened yeah. in homeroom. Right. So that's hard. So five months later, Cheryl would be sentenced, but first she was allowed to produce witnesses in reference to the mitigating circumstances. Later, Cheryl would reflect that it had not been the prosecution's accusations and the hurtful things that the media said that got to her. But rather, it was the witnesses that spoke during this portion of her sentencing that broke her heart. Twenty people were called to the stand, all of them adults, and all of them had the power to stop what had been happening to Cheryl. And all of them admitted that they had a feeling about what was going on regarding the sexual abuse, and that they knew what was going on, when it came to the physical abuse. In the court case, they call it incest. And yes, while we're talking about a father and a daughter, this cannot be referred to as just incest. That term implies consent. There was no consent. So now it's referred to as incestual sexual abuse or familial sexual abuse. All of the witnesses knew violent physical abuse was taking place. They knew about the sexual part, but had not seen it. 
and no one did anything. They all said that they were too scared of James Pearson to ever come forward. For example, and this is a witness in addition to the 20 witnesses that said that, this witness is totally innocent. She did the right thing here. So this is one of Cheryl's classmates, a girl named Diane. So on Valentine's Day of 1984, so when Cheryl's a sophomore in high school, this is when she first started dating Rob, um, she observed, Diane did, Cheryl being dropped off at school by her father. As she was getting out of the car, she was pulled back in by her wrist by her father, who then started punching her in the face. She said that he punched her about four or five times. She saw Cheryl slump over. Diane was horrified by what she saw, so she told one of the guidance counselors. Later, we would find out from Cheryl, once she takes the stand, that as she was leaving the car, she had dropped a Valentine's Day card that she had made for Rob, and her father saw it. So he dragged her back into the car and punched her in the head until she passed out. This is something that he did often. Later in the school day, she was called into the guidance counselor's office. The counselor saw the bruises on her face and told Cheryl, if she won't talk about it, there's nothing she could do. Cheryl didn't say anything, and the counselor didn't do anything. Didn't report what happened. Now, this was 1984 when this took place. Mandatory reporting becomes a, a requirement in 1989. So if this would have been 1989, that guidance counselor would have lost her job and her license. Right, because she didn't report it. Because she didn't report it. So that's why mandatory reporting is so crucial and it's so good that it became law because look at what could have been avoided. Oh, yeah. Years years of abuse could, yes. have, could have been stopped. She went... This girl was punched so hard in the head so many times that she lost consciousness and then went to school. Yeah. So how many times was she sent to school with bruises all over her? I'm sure a lot. I'm sure a lot. So Cheryl explained all of this when she took the stand and she told the whole horrific tale of what had been done to her. And it would take the presiding judge three weeks to make a decision as to how to sentence Cheryl. Finally, a choice had been made. Cheryl fainted when she heard that she had been sentenced to six months in prison and five years probation. She was relieved. Cheryl said that she actually felt safe for the first time in prison. She knew when those bars closed at night that no one was coming into her room, and she knew that Joanne was safe. In fact, she had never slept so well. In the end... She said six months was nothing when you had already served six years. Cheryl was released after three months, and Rob and her brother went to go pick her up. The couple got engaged shortly thereafter and were married in a beautiful ceremony. The couple are still married today, and they have two beautiful girls who are now adults. They have a strong bond and they've gone through so much together. And they even wrote a book about this case, which I used to help write the case. And I, I have it linked in the show notes. 
um, about what they'd gone through and Cheryl's survival. But what about Sean Pika? In all of her interviews and the book, Cheryl has said numerous times that her only regret is what Sean had to endure. She feels guilty about what he has gone through. In December of 2002, Pika was released from prison. He was 32 years old. In prison, he was connected with a program called Hudson Link, which gives prisoners a second chance by helping them earn college degrees. He now serves on the board of directors and helps other prisoners the way that he was helped. And he really enjoys his work doing that. And in every interview I've seen him give, he gets very emotional when he talks about how he's able to contribute and help people that have made the same mistakes that he did. It's nice that he turned his life around and was able to make something of it. Make something positive yeah. of it. And he has a family now. And well, That's good. So Cheryl works to help people, too. She's become an advocate for those who have suffered sexual abuse. It's not your shame to carry. People will believe you. And it doesn't have to define the rest of your life. That was crazy, right? It is. And those are very wise words. Somebody who really went through a lot of shit. Oh, I feel like we just went through a lot of shit. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Twists was, and turns. That was one hell of a roller coaster. That let me was tell intense. you. Nothing like at Disney. This is uh <laughs> No, this was not a Disney ride. No, this this was pretty crazy. All right. So before we go, what I want to do is say thank you so much to all of our new supporters on Patreon. You do not know how much you are helping us. We appreciate it and we hope you're enjoying those extra two bonus episodes a month. I'm sure they're Always good to help you get through your week. So we want to say thank you so much to Kathleen Parks, Stacey Maxwell, Elise Leardham Gadson, Jackie Rodriguez, Kelton Niels, Nicole Smith, Alyssa Sabi, Kyle Roost, Jennifer Emmons, Brittany Blevins, Emily Diaz, Frank Hall, Natasha Argenti, Nate Rugamir, Mark Sontag, Nicole Diaz, Joni Bean, Franny, Susan Trimble, Elizabeth Kendall, Sarah Adams, Sophia Tahir Khani, Sarah Kelly, Misty Trotter, Nathan Wilcoxon, Kel, Abigail Vaughn, Gail, Rebecca Calhoun, Brittany Bast, Sam Beeb, Becky Pandre, Angie Schultz, Phoebe Glazer, Jen, Dylan Hall, Emily Fontenot, Ivy Jewell, Stephanie Brown, April Brown, Shelby, Jennifer Bales, and Jennifer Whittaker. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon. Please let us know if you need anything. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys.